This week, we're answering your questions. We'll be covering rent vesting, how to overcome analysis paralysis, understanding the conveyancing process, and how to work out zoning and what it even means to you. Welcome to Your First Home Buyer Guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy a workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. tackling your questions but before we get into that what is your special house this week Megan there's something quite nice in the video behind you actually quite like this one actually Mm. it's real oh hang on I'll go this way it's really interesting so this was built in 2020 so it's not that old but it, it is in Idaho on the ski slopes in Idaho and it was named or called the Sun Valley Starship interesting isn't it wow I don't get Starship, but I do get something that's a bit weird in the front. So you've got to tune in and have a look yeah, at the video on YouTube yeah, if you want to see this house. On the side in the front of the house, mm-hmm. or is it the back of the house? I, I don't know what it is, but it does look a bit like a tr- uh, like a water treatment tank. I'm not sure. <laughs> I like the house. I'm not sure like about the, the tank. Yeah. And can you imagine <laughs> it? Just snow all around it and ski fields. Uh, just beautiful. Maybe it's beautiful. a hot tub. All right. Oh, yeah. That'd be fun. All right. Each, well, we actually get quite a lot of questions from our members mm. and also from listeners. Um, and so, you know, we're going to tackle a few of those this week. We like to, well, I guess the reason we like to do these ones, Veronica, is, you know, some people have a question or they don't even know they have a question, but a lot of people have a similar kind of situation at some point during their journey what someone else has asked actually might be relevant to you. So if we can share the questions that other people have and how we've answered them, then, you know, forearmed is forewarned. And and if you come up against a a similar type situation in your search, in your journey, then you can go, ah, I remember in this episode, we'll go back to that one and get some answers. Absolutely. Now, our first question is from Nicholas. Just wanted to see your thoughts on rent vesting and how many times you've come across people who have bought to invest but decided to do the six-month living in the house to avoid stamp duty, (laughs) even though he knows we're not a fan of uh, government incentives. Um, Does this pose a big concern when it comes to capital gains tax, et cetera, as it is moving from being owner-occupied to being investment? Now, yes, this is an an accountant's question, question. (laughs) but we can talk in general terms around the sorts of things that can trap people. 
And and so that's what we're going to, how we're going to answer it, not as accountants, but as buyers agents who see this sort of thing a lot. So yes, we do come across people (laughs) who do this. And rent vesting is one of those strategies that suits some people, but doesn't suit anybody else. And I guess the first thing I want to say is one, check out whether that is the right strategy for you and where you're going. And and that's a discussion to have with a financial advisor, not with your mates or your colleagues, um, because they have their own journey and pathway that they're on and goals and things they want to achieve in their lives and incomes are different and job trajectories are different. So really, really important to firstly question whether rent vesting for you. If it is, and um, you can live in a property that you're purchasing as potential investment property, then there are a lot of questions you have to ask your accountant. Um, And I guess what we can talk about, Veronica, is what questions should you ask? And then how does that filter into the asset selection side of things, which is course, what we're we're helping people do is actually find the right property to to suit that. that. So so the first thing is, look, stamp duty concessions aren't a government government incentive as such. They're a concession on a a particular tax. Um, And there are limits on stamp duty concessions. So first thing you need to do is have a discussion with even a mortgage broker is a good person to ask about this because they'll help you calculate the differences between what stamp duty would be, or transfer duty would be as an owner occupier versus what it would be as a rent, uh, as a, an investment property. So understand the numbers first before you choose a, a, a particular strategy. Um, and and most importantly, I, I think Veronica, in making a decision about which property to buy, don't make a personal decision about what you're choosing if you're going to live in it for six months, make an investment-based decision. Oh, that's such a good point, actually. It it really complicates things when you're trying to make one property do a whole bunch of different things. Do too many things. Yeah. So in this case, they're trying to, you know, get into the property market using all the incentives to try to sort of leverage to, to maximise the government, um, you know, free money, if you like, and then sort of rot the system in a way by going, right, I have to live in it for six months so then I can do this and this, blah, blah, blah. And so there's there's a lot of complications in there because, like, as you said, you know, you could be buying for you, but in reality, actually, you need to buy with an investment mindset. Um, the other thing, too, is that um, when people do do rent vesting, you know, it it's there's very rarely a situation where somebody can start off as a rent investor and then quite comfortably at some future point, maybe in five or 10 years time, go, right, now I'm going to buy the home I'm going to live in. Because the rent investing path often is a one-way ticket for some people. It's, it's a one property ticket. They never actually end up buying the home to live in. And so you've got to sort of be clear about what doors it might shut by opening mm. a door to let you into the market, is that by the virtue of you doing that, closing another door that means you're never going to live in your own home? Now, can we dig into that, Veronica, because it's yeah. a good point and I think it's not we're not really, really being as clear as we could be on that point, and that is it's a borrowing capacity question at some mm. point, isn't it? Yeah. And what, what people don't realise, and if they're not focused on a really good asset for their first property, whether they live in it or whether they don't live in it, then they can actually hamstring themselves in the future because of that borrowing capacity. So the, the, if the first asset doesn't do a good job in terms of capital mm. growth, if it mm. doesn't provide equity growth, all those sorts of things, then it doesn't provide that springboard to leap off it to get into another property down the track. And if you get stuck on that first property, then you'll be a rent investor forever. 
And so that is a challenge, particularly when you're trying to also then squeeze yourself into the criteria to fit into the government incentive qualification, to qualify for a government incentive. If that means that you are restricted in the type of asset you can buy, the quality of that property, whether it's new particularly, um, all of those sorts of things, you're sort of squishing, you're really hammering that square pig into the round hole, then you potentially could cost yourself, you know, your future. Really? Yeah, you're you're trying to make the situation fit, no, you to fit to the situation to get certain types of grants and incentives. And, of course, that's a big no-no. It it actually has to be about what is your big picture plan and that's a big part of it. Are you going to own a home in the future? Because if you do constrict yourself, uh, restrict yourself with borrowing capacity, you may not be able to achieve that without selling that first asset. And if that hasn't done a good job and it's not returning you what it should return you or you end up with negative equity, it might set you way further back than had you not purchased that rent vesting property. Which gets to the capital gains tax Mm. question because you don't pay capital gains tax if you actually end up with negative equity. Um, Very rarely, anyway. (laughs) There's a very small percentage of people that end up with negative equity that pay capital gains tax. (laughs) I can't even think how that would work. I I can't even know. (laughs) If you haven't made a gain, you've made a loss. Yeah, yeah. So at the end of the day, you only pay tax if you make money, right? So that's the first thing. I would happily pay a million dollars in tax a year, happily, because it means that I've made bucket loads more than that, right? Mm. But so the thing is with property, of course, that if you live in it and own it and live in it and never rent it out, you never pay capital gains tax on it, right? If you rent it out under certain circumstances within a certain period of time and don't buy another place to to live in, then you get a a six-year, up to a six-year capital gains tax-free threshold. So there's a period of time that you can still, um, you know, gain equity in that property and not have to pay capital gains tax when you sell, but there are criteria around that. You can't buy another property to live in, et cetera, et cetera. It's got to be a certain time Um, frame. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's, I think, capped at six years and that could change. So, you know, everything we talk about is current at the point. Bearing in mind, we're not accountants. Um, so, you know, there's, 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 there are certain, um, yeah, not yeah. Advice. So there's certain periods of time that you can take advantage of that, that uh, capital gains tax free period. But the problem, once again, with buying an investment or a rent vesting before, forgetting whether you live in it or not, if you don't live in it, then you never get that capital gains tax free period. If you do live in it, you know, you under certain uh, circumstances, you can get a period. But if you are pure rent vesting where you never actually live in it, then you will pay capital gains tax when you sell that property, which is another issue when you want to sort of leapfrog or leverage into a bigger home to live in at some future point because that means you're paying tax on a property that you wouldn't be paying tax on mm. if you'd actually bought something to live in, in the first place. So so that it is quite complicated and it's really really important to understand these different, um, these different implications. But, um, you know... Great We've question given- because there's a couple of things that are just slightly confused in the question too, and that is how big a concern does it pose when you move from being unoccupied to investment? Mm. Well, they're treated totally differently from a tax perspective. So there's two different tax events that are that are happening mm. there. So um, really, really important to understand why you would be doing that. What what are your savings? Um, what are your intentions? What are your lo- what are your long term goals? Your short term goals? Um, and having those conversations with a broker and an accountant to really understand, because you may well find that there isn't 
have any great benefit of you doing that in the price of property or the, the area that you're buying in because you don't get the concessions. Yeah. Um, and, and you shouldn't then choose an asset based on the concessions if you can afford a better asset in a better location. This is so convoluted, even our answer to this. I, I, I know it. I get it. But I can understand if you listen to this, your probably head's probably There's spinning. There's lots of what, if, what ifs. There's a lot yeah. of what ifs and it's about you. It's not about a general question. Um, and I think that's the thing that we really want to hammer home is you have to talk to the experts in their field about those situations as they apply to you. And it is a process that you work through. And I know we harp on about this, but an educated buyer makes better decisions. <laughs> and if you work if through they this make process. Through the pro- yes, take yeah, the steps yeah. in the right order. Absolutely. Exactly let's, right. let's look at this question that we had uh, late last year, I think it was. Um, and, and this, this one is from came, one of our students, actually, this one. one. Of our students. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she said, I think I've reached the analysis paralysis stage. So just wanted to ask some questions to feel like someone can, uh, yeah, to feel if someone can help. We can help. Sure. Of course. <laughs> we won't make a decision for you, though. That's no. what we always go back and say. When you say easy to buy, hard to sell, if the market is slow, which doesn't seem likely anytime soon, it will come. It has actually come in starting Sydney and mm. Melbourne. Yep. Um, how do you know if something is too easy to buy if it's a buyer's market? I assume you trust your due diligence. You want to start with that one or should we? Well, it's a long question. It is a long question. There's four parts, I think, to this question there are. Um, so, yeah, that one. And that's such a good question because what she's basically saying is in, in, in what we talk about all the time is in a hot market, everything gets competitive and everything feels difficult to buy. And, you know, because our, our principle is that if it's easy to buy, it's going to be hard to sell. And if it's hard to sell, it's going to be easy to buy. Uh, hang on. Hard to buy, it's going to be easy to sell. Um, so the point being that, you know, a really in-demand property is generally a good asset. That's the sort of one of our litmus tests. However, in a hot market, everything is really hard to buy. You know, everything's competitive. Mm. So she's brilliant for asking that question. So really um, the way to work out if something will be easy to buy in a buyer's market is to consciously push down FOMO and engage your critical thinking. So you have to sort of think, am I overcompensating on negative features because I fear that I'm never going to buy? For example, is it dark due to a poor aspect and you just can't do anything to fix it? And in a house you might be, but in an apartment, for instance, you you can't fix if Mm. it's got a poor accent. You can't stick a skylight in most apartments. You can't put a bigger window on on the (laughs) northern side. Mm. Whereas in a house, you know, there's things you can do to fix it. So if you're sort of trying to compensate, like, oh, you know, I'm always at work anyway and I never, I'm never home, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it won't matter to me. It's like that's a good sign that, mm, you know what, you're when the market slows down, yeah. yeah, when the market slows down, buyers will go, nah, don't want, I don't want that. Or it's is it on a busy road? And this is a big one. It's because a huge compromise. In, in, during this FOMO, you know, heated over overactive property market, it is a compromise that you just shouldn't make because this is not going to last forever. Yes, prices are going up, but it is not going to last forever. Things are going to start to slow down. And when people do start to, to feel that pressure lift, then the compromises won't be the ones that they will make. So those, those things like main roads, flood affected, overland flow, backing mm. on the commercial, you know, all of those sorts of things that are just overriding objections that cannot be fixed um, the, it, 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 the people are going to start saying, I can get better. Yeah. I can and do I better. The fundamental question to ask yourself, if I had choice, would I go for this? You know, because mm. if, if the, at the 
can't at the time that you're looking, you don't have choice. Um, it could be there's just not enough stock on the market or people are snapping stuff too fast, is if I had choice, because at some point the market will turn again and then people do have choice. And when they have choice, they get picky. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they won't buy on a busy road or they won't buy the ugliest house in the street that you can't fix, you know, and they won't buy an apartment if the bedrooms are bigger than the living area, you know. <laughs> They'll get fussy about stuff like that. You might think you, you laugh and, and you know, but like how many times you walked into a place and you go, oh, it's all out of whack. It's completely <laughs> all distorted. The are wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, is the house on a steeply sloping block and you're thinking, oh, yeah, I can get out there and I can terrace and all this work. And you just think, would you, would you? Would you actually use choice? it if it was terraced? Yeah. Or would you bother? All, yeah, if it's it, all really a choice. good and well to say it's a steeply sloping block, but, you know, I'll put a couple of levels. And then if you if you do that and you're at the, you know, phase in life where you're just coupling up and the kids are coming soon, mm. I guarantee you, you will not take those children down into that steep terrace at the bottom. You just won't. They won't and they won't go there on their own. Because <laughs> they'll be rolling down the hill and smacking into the fence at the bottom. <laughs> So these these are the signs, you know, I think within ourselves, we know, you know, we are compromising, you know, we have to compromise, like, but it's working out, what am I compromising on things that are going to be a real problem for me when I go to sell it, Mm. or things that I just have to get over. If there wasn't upward pressure on the market, if there were other options, would other people buy this property, you have to think about the future buyer when capital gain is an element of your strategy. That will and have, it should be. Yeah, if it's not, it should. Uh, the next part of um, her question is, uh, when determining property value, do you use quarterly growth and add a bit if a similar property is sold in the past few months? Or is there some way to figure out monthly growth? Mm, that's a tough one, uh, but it's not. So, <laughs> so and, and, of course, we go through this in depth in, in your first time buyer guide, and, and that is you, you don't look at quarterly figures. When you're looking at an individual property, you look at comparable sales of other mm. properties. So um, in a rapidly rising market, we talk about indexation. So Veronica and I both have um, our methods of calculating that that indexation, which are essentially the same, but we, we work in different markets. So the particularly apartment market versus house market can be a, a little bit more um, generic, whereas houses can be a little bit less generic. So looking for the comparable sales and what is actually selling um, versus something that's comparable the, the month before, two months before, and working out that percentage difference will give you an idea of how rapidly things are growing. So waiting for quarterly figures, uh-uh, no, it's too late. It's too long. It's ineffective and it's too high level. So really important to get your feet on the ground and understand what's actually happening in the market every weekend. So there's the, you know, when a market's rising, you need to adjust every month. When it's falling, you need to do the same thing. But there are periods of time when the market can be quite static, even in Sydney at the moment. So we're recording this in May. We'll probably go to air, I don't know, June, July. And the market in Sydney, it's definitely peaked. It peaked in January. And then when things go back to normal, it's like some properties continue to sort of grow in value and others will lose value. So the C grades lose value. The A grades continue to gain a little bit. These, there's pretty much one buyer per property and they sort of, they, they just stay around the same. So the growth really flattens out. So you don't sort of need to adjust every month in a pretty stable market. You can you can probably look back at three months ago and think, you know, it's probably sell for similar money. Mm-hmm. But so it's really contingent on what's happening in the market at the time. And then, but yeah, the comparable sales is really, really important and adjusting only if the market's moving rapidly in either direction. One, one thing we do like to use those, um, I guess median 
house price statistics for Veronica is to compare different suburbs. Mm-hmm. So you might you might look at a comparable house in one suburb versus another suburb or that think they're comparable, but you do actually want to look at the differentiation between the median house prices in those suburbs to see how comparable they are or aren't. And the challenge with that is assuming you've got similar type of stock. So if you're looking at a suburb, which is like a suburban family block size, blocks of land with family houses, um, and the next suburb has got similar type of property, and so you can compare those medians because it's sort of like an apple with an apple. Mm. But if you're comparing one suburb, which has got like a lot of riverfront land, some workers' cottages, like in, I'm thinking about Sydney, for instance, that might have um, some waterfronts, some workers' cottages, and everything in between, that median for that is not going to be useful when comparing to something that's got totally different type of housing stock. So you sort of got to look for the similar type of um, stock and then that can be really useful for comparing suburbs. Mm, particularly apartments. Yeah, yeah. Similar complex, a similar size, a similar sub, you know, differentiation and in suburbs. Part three of her question was sort of along the same lines, which is how do you figure out if a suburb's growth is just because of new house and land sales? Just looking at recent sales data on something like realestate.com. Well... Mm. <laughs> well, there's a, well, there's a couple <laughs> of things here because the thing is, what property developers and spruikers will often talk about is rising prices in a certain area, and yeah. if they are Growth suburbs, yeah, and they the could be they looking use, at yeah. statistics that actually actually says yes, those median prices have been rising. That's because there's been a zoning change, and all the people with their old houses have sold it to developers, and so they got more for their house because they buddied up with their neighbours, and and effectively it became a development site. You know what I mean? Because mm. of the zoning change, it actually had a, a significant change in value. They go, look, at prices are rising in this area, and technically they're right, but what they're not actually divulging is that that's the reason prices rose, not because it's not saying that the four-bedroom home built cheek to je- cheek by jowl to the next four-bedroom home on 250 square metres of land is actually increasing in value. You look, you look, gotta look, you mentioned earlier the composition of what makes up the prices in that suburb is really important. And if you can pull out, um, and again, it, it's, it's good to look at an individual level what properties have been doing, and particularly unimproved properties from one sale to another um, is a really good way of breaking that down to a much more granular level. Um, but but it's really important to keep your eye on that because if there have been, as you say, rezoning, that can really push a median house price up. But you might actually find that individual house free sales are going backwards in those mm. suburbs because people don't want those necessarily big developments to be happening there. So so breaking them down to a much more granular level, yeah, it takes some effort and it takes a a, a really good use of a spreadsheet and and feet on the ground. But it's it's really well worth it because choosing a suburb just on based on on um, median house price figures uh, can really sway you in the wrong direction if you're not looking at the composition of what's actually in those sales figures. Now, the, her fourth question is finally, and maybe this is rhetorical, I feel like I'm getting cold feet at having to try and judge what's an A-grade property in a B-grade location instead of looking at wishful thinking, probably B-grade <laughs> older properties in an A-grade location. So maybe this question is just me looking for a reassurance that regardless of how tempting the beach is, <laughs> that's usually the smart choice. I'm not quite sure what she meant about the beach. I but don't either. <laughs> <laughs> I th- that the B grade, oh, would that be the A grade location and the B grade? Property? I think so. 
I think maybe it's B grade property in A grade location. Mm. <laughs> and look, it, it depends on what makes, Yeah, it depends on mm. what makes it a B grade property because um, being on a main road and A grade location still wouldn't suggest that that um, just in and of itself would be a good decision. There would have to mm. be a lot of other factors that would come into that, um, and, and we couldn't go to that level. But if you you know, if it's B grade because it has, um, you know, a clunky floor plan that could be fixed and you have the money that could allow you to fix that, then you could overcome that objection and you could actually turn that into an A grade. So it depends on what it is that makes it makes it the, the B grade, if you like, or the, the, the lesser standard than the house next door that doesn't have the issues. I think the interesting thing with that too is that there are B grade locations within A grade suburbs even C-grade locations within mm. A-grade suburbs. Mm. And I think that that's um, some people sort of get fixated on the suburb itself, like, you know, got to go on a great suburb. It's like, well, actually, I would rather go to a lesser suburb but get a really lovely street than buy a crap spot in a great suburb. Yeah. And so and what we're talking about there is maybe it's at the bottom of the dip. Maybe yeah. there's some, you know, really lovely houses in elevated positions, but this particular property might be in the bottom of a dip yeah. in a great street. In the really mozzie infested, whether that's a good decision. <laughs> the mozzie infested flood, flood prone creek. <laughs> you want an hour away from that. All right. Um, you know, <laughs> we've got an anonymous question. I can't remember why this is anonymous, but anyway. I don't, I don't either because it we, only comes to us. <laughs> we quote, we pop the questions into a bucket. By and, the way, um, Rhiannon uh, uh, did buy. So yes. she did overcome her FOMO and bought a great quality property. Which is fantastic. Mm. So spoke, this is anonymous. I spoke to a conveyancer on the phone today and when I asked how many contracts, this is Section 32, so this is in Victoria, Victoria. Um, they can review for their fee. They said they're happy to review contracts for nothing as they look over at them after hours and then the actual conveyancing is charged for. Um, and the process was explained that they look over the contract and let her know if there's any conditions that she needs to have with the offer. She places a conditional offer when that's possible, of course, and then they start the conveyancing process and she couldn't quite tell whether this was after the offer was placed or actually accepted. So this is what the conveyancer said to her, right? Does this sound dodgy? <laughs> the fact they review however many contracts you want for nothing, am I trapped with a dodgy property if the conveyancing only starts after I made the offer? I thought conveyancing was the looking into the contract stuff and even if it is it, if I can... If, if it can, it can be, done, be done after. Oh, good. Okay. So he's actually saying he's perhaps confusing property conveyance with contract review. Yeah. And I this think is the essence there. That's exactly right. Mm. And I think that conveyance is, um, in a way, confusing it too. Well, not confusing it, but basically saying that they look over the contract to let to know, to let them know if there's any conditions they need to have with the offer, which is really important. Mm -hmm. And then, that, yes, they do all that conveyancing process. The so conveyancing it is after. Yeah. The and word the, on a conveyancing. Yeah. On a conditional offer. And let's, let's separate mm. these two things. With a conditional offer where you have conditions that, that the owner will accept, that works. If it's an unconditional offer or an auction, it's the flip way around yeah all your conveyance all your investigations have to be done before you put in an unconditional offer or bid at an auction so i want to separate that first because they're two mm. really 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 different buying situations and that is really important but even in new south wales like if you buy with a cooling off period 
And so that means you've got five working days to get all the due diligence and stuff sorted. If you haven't had the contract reviewed by a conveyancer before you do, or a lawyer before you do that, and you want to actually negotiate changes to that contract, then you don't necessarily get that opportunity. That's not what the cooling off period allows you. So what is um, it is really important to get that reviewed. Now, I, I do worry about a conveyance. Yeah, yeah, I'll look at as many as possible and I'll do them after hours. That sounds a little offhand to me. Like mm. I, you know, and I'm not saying, I mean, there's ones, there's sounds plenty out there. Sounds to me. Sounds, it does. sounds like someone who works from home and. Unsustainable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we want to. I guess what I want to know, and that's not to say it's bad, it's just to say that that person won't be doing that for long in their business because mm. it'll get to a point where you go, no, I need a life, I'm not going to be reading contracts after hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there, I think the key point is we need to separate those two things. Conveyance yes. is a process and there are mm. conveyancing protocols in each state. That is a process as part of um, the purchase and settlement of a property. Contract review is often done quite separate to the conveyance. What what a conveyance is looking <laughs> at in a contract review is is there anything that's missing from this contract that we actually need to do some some investigations about as part of the conditions of the contract mm. yes so i always you know i know that particularly in queensland you're not a big fan of conveyances over lawyers and i um, will well, just generally what we find is that um yeah they're i think it's a bit different because you have property conveyance specialists who, who are qualified specifically in that space, whereas um, up here it's they've got to work for a lawyer and the conveyancer may work under a one lawyer with a number of conveyances underneath them and they're not really specialists mm. qualifications. My pre- I do we do work with conveyances in New South Wales and certainly I know people in, in Victoria that work with them and, and elsewhere for that matter. Mm. And some are very, very good because they're very, very experienced and they've and particularly if they've worked in a legal office for a long time. Mm. So they've got exposure to some of the a- areas, the stuff they don't know. Because mm. conveyancing itself is a limited qualification that mm. they have. And when it sort of ventures outside, mm. you know, their their lane, if you like, you know, we're big on people sticking to their lane, they need to know when to call in the other experts. A bit like you and I and we talk about accounting, right? Outside our lane and we've got to go ding, a little little, um, red flag slide up, the little alarm bell goes off and we go, we need to get expert advice from that person. Same with a conveyancer. They can be excellent, um, not the cut price ones, don't ever go for a budget conveyancer, they're a nightmare. but they've also got to understand where, oh, that could lead to a problem and that's mm-hmm. outside my remit and I want to make sure that we cover that off and get the right advice before you go down that path. Mm-hmm. So we look to conveyances not as transactional, you know, because that's the conveyancing part is the transaction of, you know, transferring effectively ownership from one person to another, whereas the advice in terms of what you're signing up to, what you're committing to, that's the bit where you need advice before you actually, ideally before you make an offer. Mm. And so if you're dealing with a cut price conveyancer, um, I, you're not going to get that. No, you're not. And, and it starts to add up. So every time you ask a question, often the costs add up. But I want to also differentiate between the states, Veronica, because um, how the contracts are prepared is, is very different in each state. So in Queensland, there's a very, about 95% of the contracts are done on an REIQ um, standard form contract that is approved by the Queensland Law Society. So they have actually worked in conjunction to, to produce a standard form contract. 
that is in 95% of the cases, if a solicitor or a conveyancer sees that, they're going to go, okay, I know what's in this. I also know I need to know what what it is that you're buying to a degree and what your situation is so that I can then put the special conditions in that will cover you finance, approval, building and pest inspection, council certifications, whatever the case may be. So there's special conditions added in, whereas in New South, so the, the uh, uh, real estate agent does that standard form contract, gives that to you, you take it to your, your solicitor and say, what else do I need added to this contract? That's the special conditions. In New South Wales, really different. Mm. Isn't it? Really different. Yeah, really different to Victoria too. And you know, I was talking to a buyer's agent yesterday in Tasmania and actually I think it's worse than Queensland down there. You know, she was basically saying that unless you, until you get, and I hope I've got this correct, until you actually make the offer, you don't have the right to ask for any documentation at all. And when the market's red hot, you got people making offers with no access to information. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really alarming. Um, yeah. So I've got it. We've got to dig more into that. We we haven't had any students from Victoria no, yet. Uh, no, that's Tasmania. Sorry, Tasmania. Yes, we have plenty of stories, plenty of students lots, in Victoria. Lots of lockdown <laughs> students in Victoria yeah, over the years. Yes, don't <laughs> let the lack of lockdown put you off actually learning about buying a property. <laughs> um, That's really interesting because, there's, yeah, there's not a lot of disclosure in Queensland, but you can certainly ask for anything. They don't mm. have to provide it, but you can you can ask for anything associated with the property. Yeah, and so, like, literally, I mean, I've got a situation at the moment and a property that we're negotiating for and, you know, we've, we've asked for certain things. I know they've done renovations on this property mm. and I know what to ask for and mm. that's, that's the big thing. You've got to know what to ask for. So I've even preempted that before we send the contract off to the conveyance for review. I'm asking for those documents that I know should be there mm. um, but aren't. They're not, they don't have to provide them, but most buyers wouldn't know. I know, and I want it. I want it. And of course, they're saying, "Oh no, we don't have a copy of the plans that we built to." They got some documents, but not the plans. And I'm like, "Well, that sort of doesn't add up to me. Like, I don't believe that." And I think that maybe they've actually built something where it shouldn't have been. And you'll only know that if you actually get the stamped, approved plans and And then compare it it to what was built. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So there's actually a next step there. It's not just getting them. But, uh, but in New South Wales, the, the, the contract is actually prepared by the seller's solicitor. Mm-hmm. So it's not even a standard form contract that you could easily say, oh, yeah, I, I know that contract. It's it, 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 There is a oh. huge amount of review that needs to be done. True. There is a standard section of it. Let me tell you. It's like, I don't know, about 19 pages or something. And there will also be a page of special of, of um, amendments which will you know, refer to various clauses in that and change various things. So, yeah, it is. But there are five essential documents that need to go into a contract for a house and seven essential documents that need to go into contact a contract for a, an apartment. And so at least you've got a starting point that they have to provide those things, as I said. Mm. And in Victoria, it's very similar with a Section 32. But obviously, if you, you know, where you're buying, if you don't know what's missing, because mm. even then there's stuff missing, you know, even with those documents. Anyway, so, so that's what a good conveyancer will help you, the, the stuff that's missing. Yep. Fill in the Our gaps. last question. All right. So Lee asked if uh, if selling a negatively geared property with claiming depreciation, I'm guessing during the process of owning it, what happens when we sell the property? Do we need to pay back depreciation? So let's go with that one first because there is a second part to this question. So that's another accounting question. Mm. The short answer is sort of, yeah, you mm. can't double dip with the government. Um, so a lot of people will say, oh, negative gearing, it's, that's the reason that first home buyers can't get into the market. But it's not that simple. 
really. Um, and, you know, so if, if you do claim like interest costs and depreciation and those sorts of things um, throughout the life of the owning the property and at the end of it all, yeah, the depreciation does get added back. And I only found that out myself when I sold a property some years back. I was like, oh, yeah, there's some adbacks that happens. There are some, yeah. some capital costs that you can um, bring into the equation, but there are some like a stamp duty. Yeah, um, buyer's agent. Use a buyer's fees, agent. Yeah, yep. if you use those. But so, so, so important to have that conversation with your accountant, mm. even before you enter into it, because it can help with the holding costs during the process. So that's what the depreciation and, and negative gearing is about. But there are consequences at the end. So it's it's all, it's a bit like. Um, you know, work from home in your own yes. house. You know, there, there are capital gains implications for, for claiming those sorts of costs. Mm. So you've, you've got to, don't just look for what the benefit is. Make sure you understand what the bigger picture is and what the long-term impact is on you. Um, and an accountant is absolutely the place to find out that information as it relates to you. I'm so glad you raised that because often these things are offered as like this great opportunity. You're nuts if you don't take take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if it comes out and bites you in the bum at some future point, you go, oh, hang on a minute. So no one told if I'm that. claiming that yeah. bedroom as an office <laughs> yeah. and, and that forms, I don't know, 10% of my house, that means 10%. You might have to pay capital gains tax on 10% of your property. Yeah, so I reckon that's are, a light bulb moment for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a re, once again, it's the right advisors. Getting the right advice at the right time. In the right uh, steps. Yep. And the second part of her question was how to check the zoning of land. Could you please explain more on zoning? What data to look at before you purchase? Um, days on market, vacancy rates, which has nothing to do with zoning. Running. What is yep. NDIS homes and is it worth investing? Tips on how to purchase a house, especially now in a hot market. Look, I wouldn't so much run- in there. Let's just go with I know. <laughs> let's let's just stick to zoning because I mean, like the reality is that you know, trying to find it's like defense housing. Do you remember? I don't know if you've oh, still around. It's yeah. still around. DHA. So, yeah, yeah. I remember when I first got into buyers agency, like a, a number of other things that I that I thought I had this sort of lovely little romantic notions of what I was going to be doing. And one of them was because I'd sold a few properties that were defense housing in uh, Roselle in Sydney over the years and I sold them close to when they were at the end of their 10 or 15 year contract. And so there's a massive discount when you're selling those properties when they were within contract because only investors could buy them. Mm. It's a classic example of why you don't buy investor stock, right? And then, but at the end of that contract, their value shot up because all of a sudden anybody could buy them, mm-hmm. you know? So there's this one, one little tiny- One moment in time. One moment in time where you had a Big increase in value, and so I thought, oh, I'm gonna, I know, I'm gonna buy all these um, defence housing properties from my investor clients just before the, the end of their contract, and like, yeah, yay, yeah, they'll get fresh carpet, fresh repaint. I know, all and then all of a sudden, value, housing. yeah, value increase, and then I realised that they don't develop in those really A grade areas mm-hmm. anymore. They basically build these house and land packages out in in clusters. areas. I would not call A-grade properties in A-grade locations anymore. So I was quickly disabused of that notion. (laughs) (laughs) But back to the zoning question. Thank goodness you didn't. Did not put any clients into those properties. (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, Zoning. Okay, so one way to find out zoning could be on the contract. Um, uh, The best and easiest place to find it, and um, if you haven't checked this out, always go to the free information that's available on your local government website. So so for Brisbane City Council, there is a city plan, city plan 2014. 
on that city plan, you can find out a huge amount of information about an individual property and the properties that are around it because you don't want to just know what the zoning is for your own property. You want to know what could possibly go up next door, behind it, cross the road, anything that might have a negative impact on, on your property itself. So one of the overlays in uh, on the Brisbane City Kansas City plan is uh, the zoning overlay and it tells you what the zoning is and what that means and what can actually be built. Now, there are other overlays that are important too, and they might be character overlays, they may be heritage, they may be noise corridors. So zoning in and Bushfire of itself. Zone. Yeah. The zoning in and of itself is only one factor to look at when you're looking at what could happen or what you could do with an individual property or what could happen around you. So important to understand all the overlays, not just what the zoning is for that individual property. Mm. Uh, one thing that, you know, like for instance, if you're in a in a zone which is for multiple dwellings, you know, you might be buying a house and you think, okay, well, that's great. Maybe one day I'll join up with the neighbours and, and we'll all yeah. sell to a developer. That's Pie, a bit pie in the sky and certainly waiting for zoning to change, very pie in the sky. Um, but also you've got to think, well, what could be built mm. next door? That's another thing with zoning. That's mm. why it's important because even across the road could be a different zoning to what the property you're looking at buying. Yep. So it's really important to to understand this and, and look into each of the different types of zones and what can be, book, can be built there. Um, and also I think too that um, th this is just one of those classics that the information is readily available. It's just mm. that most people don't even think to look. And also know? don't know how to interpret it. I was just mm. thinking you, you can have, uh, you, can have a, a, you, know, you can buy, let's say, 1,000 square metres that's zoned low to medium residential, which means you could do units, townhouses to, to two or three levels. But if there's a character overlay on that block and a house that was built before 1946 mm. and is in the aerial photo, you can't actually remove the house. So it actually limits what you can and can't do. So if you're a would-be developer and you, you buy based on zoning alone without understanding the other implications of the, the property that sits on there currently and the houses that sit around it, that can have an impact as well, mm. then you, you may well pay highest and best use of development potential without the ability to develop it. And then there's frontages, mm. there's, there's you know, floor space ratios. It's a really very complicated understanding. Stormwater locations, you, sewer lines. Maximum heights, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a whole bunch of things. So I would never that's be. That's where you can get the information. Yeah. That's it. You can get the information there. As, as Megan says, you've got to know what to do with it. And I yeah. would never do any of those speculation, speculative buys without getting like a town plan as advice or some, yeah. once again, someone in their lane. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, all right. Uh, just very, very quickly, she did mention days on market and vacancy rates. Um, and look, these are good things to keep a, an eye on. What I like to do, if, particularly with days on markets and vacancy rates, well, vacancy, they're two different things. Days on market is, is the amount of time it takes the average property to sell in that area. You know, And if you look at that over time, you can just see real, what the market's doing. When there's higher mm. days on market, it's a slower market. When there's less days on market, it's a hot market. So, but you know what? If you're on the ground, you know, when you're starting researching an area, yeah, you might look at that. But if you are on the ground and you have good local knowledge and you need that to buy properly, you won't need that data. And the same with vacancy rates. Once again, you won't need the data because you'll know what's happening. But when you're starting to research an area, yes, I think is, is, that's a good thing to just check out as your starting overview of, of uh, anywhere that you're thinking about buying. Good advice.
In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff.